With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome to this week's episode of Best Camp of My Life, a podcast about MMA. Kind of, but not really, but kind of. I'm your host, Fernanda Prates, unless those communications I found between my mother and a well-known rock star dating back to the late 80s were not the product of ephedrine laced cough syrup or an overactive childhood imagination meaning that I was right and that the obvious, some would say uncanny similarities between myself and internationally acclaimed thespian Liv Tyler were no coincidence, and that all these years of hiding behind a keyboard have been a mere detour on my path to fame, fortune, and yacht parties with one or several of the Hemsworth brothers. In which case, I'm still your host, Fernanda Prates, but only until Hollywood catches on and I am free to adopt my rock star name and fulfill my one true calling as a publicly unraveling train wreck slash best-selling author slash alleged inspiration behind The weekend's most somber yet undeniably inspired album. In any case... No need to dwell over any of that now. While my impending stardom will inevitably lead to the demise of this podcast and the swift erasure of any imagery associated with this dreadfully tedious present iteration of myself, we still have some time before the paternity test comes back and also the whole situation with the Mossad gets resolved. For now, I really am just Fernanda Prates, writer of writings, reader of readings, watcher of any and all YouTube videos involving DYI piercing accidents, and most importantly, your host through this situation we've got going on here. As those familiar with my chaotic energy probably know, now would be the time when I introduce today's guest but I'm just going to get right to it and tell you that there is, in fact, no guest today. I know, I know, but it is for your own good. If I keep showering you with amazing company and actual insight and great discourse, how will you learn to truly appreciate mediocrity? I mean, global health crisis, economic collapse, and looming climate catastrophe aside, we are a pretty spoiled generation. So today, it is just me and you and all of the very nice Twitter people who answered my call for submissions on an important, I would argue, vital subject. Pet peeves. More specifically, recurring arguments in the MMA space that really grinds our gears. For those who have been following my work for a while, shout out to all of you wonderful, incomprehensible weirdos. Some of the themes today might seem familiar, as in something you have seen me write or talk about before. Sorry about that, but what can I do if people refuse to accept me as their one true savior and insist on behaviors that I personally dislike? Also, I will probably get several pronunciations wrong, possibly misunderstand entire arguments, and inevitably alternate between Twitter names and handles in entirely arbitrary ways, making this experience a lot more confusing than it needs to be. That's showbiz, babe. In any case, here's the episode. Enjoy it, or don't, just please keep in mind that I will personally name every single one of my detractors to Oprah in my first post-incarceration tell-all interview. So I guess we'll start with what prompted this whole episode. Just this past weekend in Las Vegas, Drakkar Close had to withdraw from his fight with Jeremy Stevens after a shove from Stevens during the weigh-ins left Close dealing with symptoms of whiplash and apparently a concussion. 
Of course, once Close explained what he was dealing with, all of the several medical doctors on Twitter were outraged at the idea that a push could cause so many repercussions. Which, granted, is sort of an understandable question considering we're used to seeing fighters dealing with a lot more impact and coming out of it okay. But then you remember that this is a dehydrated person going into a situation that he wasn't prepared for, and then you see how fucking hard the shove was. You listen to actual medical doctors, not the ones who simply do that on Twitter, and you kind of understand these mechanisms. And then you kind of remember the several ways in which the human body is pretty fucking weird. And yes, it does seem entirely believable that Drakkar Close simply could not fight that day. But I mean, why think of all these very logical things when you can just go on Twitter, hop on Close's replies and accuse him, a professional cage fighter, of going through an entire fight camp and a weight cut only to... Get out of it at the very last second. Because reasons. Maybe he just doesn't like money. Who knows? That, of course, is nothing new. We're all familiar with the scared fighter trope, which, interestingly enough, had been used against Jeremy Stevens himself a couple of years ago when an eye poke ended his fight with Yeri Rodriguez just in case we needed any more evidence that, much like the pain, this is a narrative we cannot escape. I've explored this idea before, more recently in a write-up for Fanbyte. Uh, read it, comment on it, tell your friends about it, then tell me I have beautiful hair. But I will discuss it again here today because it just continues to puzzle me. How are MMA fighters simultaneously lauded as some of the most undeniably tough examples of human people in the world by this fan base and then so quickly dismissed as these soft crying quitter babies by that same fan base it just does not compute and yet here we find ourselves over and over having these discussions about whether this person who trained for weeks or months to do this exact activity which by the way happens to be a source of income that only comes about three times a year, if they're lucky, was just looking for some kind of easy way out. That, as you may or may not have noticed by the fact that I keep talking and writing and, you know, arguing with random people on Twitter about it, is my major MMA pet beef. And it led me to writing the tweet that started it all. And by all, I mean this episode. I basically asked you, nice people, at home to tell me what are your MMA pet peeves. I'll start with this one uh, by my friend Ann Evans, who actually used to work for the UFC in a couple of roles, if I'm not mistaken, but uh, also as a PR, because it interacts with this particular idea of a scared fighter. And said... Almost all fighters are scared before a fight, and they should be thankful for that because fear triggers a lot of biological processes that are extremely helpful in a fist fight. But yeah, the idea they are scared in the sense armchair warriors use is absurd. Uh, we had a brief interaction and then continued in a separate tweet, only seeing two fighters try to get out of a fight. The fighter, who normally brave as it gets, rubbed eyes so hard over and over with gloves, eyes swelled up. Doctor wouldn't let fight, which was the idea. It is a very, very hard thing these people do. Fans should respect that more. So yes, I love this answer because in case it wasn't clear... <laughs> Uh, I did not mean to say that fighters are machines who don't engage in pitiful human emotions like fear and apprehension. And uh, Also, I am not saying that there is no fighter in history who has ever tried to get out of a fight for any reason. I mean, I can only imagine the amount of anxiety that goes into the whole thing. Uh, I can only imagine all the feelings that a fighter experiences before, say, a walkout. Uh, I can only imagine all the ways in which a brain can spiral. Uh, I'm sure several fighters have seriously considered making up some shit to get out of it. And I do believe Ant, who, again, worked closely with athletes in the UFC for several years, when he says he has personally seen it happen to a couple of them. But here's the key. He said a couple of them. 
I'm just saying that for the most part, fighters are pretty good at showing up. And therefore, before automatically uh, assuming that, you know, they're trying to look for an easy way out of a situation that they agreed to and uh, pretty much structure their whole lives around participating in, maybe we could consider giving them the benefit of the doubt. I don't know. Just throwing it out there. Uh, also, would be a good time now to say that Ant has seen some things in his day. Uh, and he has a substack, and he had a series called Courage in the Cage, in which there are several great explanations. Like, there are several scientific explanations uh, behind this idea of fear and how it affects a fighter going into the cage. So, if you're interested in the subject, that's something you should check out. And there's also other types of tales. Uh, involving, for instance, Mark Coleman and the words leathery nutsack. So it's really on you if you wanna if you wanna delve into that. Now moving on to a response by Dan Tom, a friend of the podcast as well. He has been uh, was obviously one of our early guests here here at Basscamp. He said, in relation to this topic, I found most found myself thinking about your OP here last night when I noticed that commentary may or may not have been subtly throwing shade at multiple fighters who received fouls on the card, as broadcast narratives are potent for parroting, which is obviously my pet peeve. But let me also add that commentary is a very difficult job from all roles, as I greatly respect appreciate all who do it. However, poor or incomplete narratives from the booth seem Seems to be the source of most of the MMA-related arguments I get into on here, for whatever that's worth. Um, yes, and I don't know which instances and Tom was specifically referencing, but I did personally feel like part of the commentary wasn't exactly friendly toward Romanov, who got kicked in the balls real hard <laughs> and was unable to continue his fight with Juan Espino. And I do agree with Dan Tom also and that the things that are said in the booth really do tend to stick as narratives, which just really adds to the responsibility of the job. Like Dan Tom, I know it is an incredibly, incredibly tough gig. Uh, I probably wouldn't be able to do it, to be perfectly honest. It, it looks absolutely nerve wracking. And Everyone is prone to mistakes, especially when they're having to react immediately to developing events without the benefit of taking the time to think like we do back home. But I do think that the commentary team needs to be always mindful of how much weight their words can carry. And honestly, they need to be willing to kind of either rethink or reframe the way they've said certain things. What I mean by that is kind of what I replied to Dan Tom in that thread, and that is just, you might say things that are wrong, and you might make mistakes, or you might, you know, have misunderstood a situation, or you might get new information in five minutes later that you didn't have five minutes before. And I think it's really important that the booth addresses that, that, you know, the commentators own up to when they make mistakes or misjudge situations and be willing to walk certain things back. Again, all respect to them. It is really, really difficult to do what they do. I think that it's kind of a thankless job in many ways because as I've had these discussions before with some of the guests uh, that I have here who are part of USC broadcasts, um, John Gooden, Karen Bryan, Megan O'Leary, it's kind of an invisible job in the sense that if you do it right, people won't notice you there necessarily, uh, especially when you're not doing color, um, when you're you're mostly a play-by-play -play person like Gooden or, or John Anik. Uh, but all of this to say that, yes, I agree with Dan Tom, a lot of the narratives are shaped in the booth and they are repeated throughout and... There needs to be a constant awareness of that kind of responsibility. Um, while I'm here, I will take the opportunity to include my Joe Rogan pet peeve. In the, even though he wasn't in that booth last weekend, 
My main Rogan pet peeve as a commentator, I must stress, because we would need a whole different show to address the rest of it, is how he often picks a protagonist and a narrative and just calls a fight through that. Objective reality be damned. I'm sorry for the unnecessary Rogan shade, but the subject came up and I guess I just had to get it off my chest. The next pet peeve comes from Isaac Spooner. He says, when a fighter doesn't get credit for causing fight changing, not necessarily fight ending injury to their opponent. Discourse tends to dismiss those kinds of things as accidents. Example, Hawani. So you broke my orbital in the first round. Anthony Pettis. Dos Sanjos broke my orbital. Yes, uh, absolutely. And this one brought me back to a specific situation that I don't know if this is the kind of thing that Spooner had in mind, but I think that it's kind of an extreme example about how heated this debate can get and about like the whole way we just throw the words freak accident around uh, and that whole angle. And it was the first fight between Michael Chandler and Brent Primus. Uh, that was, yeah, that was the whole thing. Uh, I, if you all will recall, Michael Chandler was unable to continue due to a leg problem. Uh, the doctor really wouldn't clear him to continue the fight. And afterward, he talked a lot about how he rolled his leg and there was some nerve thing and the commission stopped it. And it was very much never acknowledging Primus's role or his presence inside the cage that night. And then on the other hand, you had Primus talking about why the whole reason why Chandler's leg stopped working was the fact that he kicked and hurt that leg. Like that was on purpose. Uh, another thing that comes to mind a lot to me is Chris Weidman and Anderson Silva. Um, kind of in both situations, really. The first one, necessarily because it wasn't an, uh, an injury, he was knocked out. But a lot of people just instead of giving Chris Weidman the props, for you know, exploiting exploring a problem in Anderson Silva's game and knocking him out, just really called it an accident or just an unfortunate thing. It was really more about uh, Silva losing than it was about Chris Weidman winning. And though this doesn't necessarily relate to the injuries, it does relate to me to the whole theme here. The second fight, obviously, there was an injury. Uh, Anderson defended a kick and his leg broke in half. And a lot of it was about you know how unfortunate it was and just you know bad luck um and everybody just forgot that chris weidman threw a kick <laughs> sorry actually it was the other way around i'm getting confused anderson threw a, a kick and weidman defended it and a lot of the narrative was kind of like how lucky was that weidman's leg just appeared in that angle and then anderson's leg broke and it was kind of like no chris defended it you know in my mind. And of course, it's hard to tell with these things because how can we ever really know for sure what was the thing that made that nerve give out or that made that leg break? You know, we'll never know for sure. But I do absolutely agree with Isaac here that there is a tendency to just disregard the injuries as accidents and ignore the fact that somebody caused a freaking injury. And I get it because it does feel like there really isn't a sense of finality when an injury stops a fight. Uh, like it's not as satisfactory as either getting, you know, a full on knockout or a tap. But at the same time, injuring your opponent to the point in which they can no longer continue is also kind of the goal. And it's interesting because a fighter who continues through an injury is lauded for their toughness, which, again, understandable. I can't imagine living through a broken orbital, let alone fighting through it. But there usually isn't a lot of acknowledgement for the person who actually trained to be able to break said orbital, if that makes any sense. So, yes, I agree that the framing of the injuries could be a little different. Or maybe we shouldn't be watching a sport in which people's whole goal is to break other people's shit. But... That's a whole other discussion, and I don't know if we're ready for it. 
Um, next, I'm combining two tweets. Uh, Mr. JM uh, said, almost all best pound for pound discourse, gravity and mass matter kids. And Marley, who said, calling anyone a goat in any sport, really. Uh, I'm tying these things together because I think it really revolves around the same concept of trying to create some sort of objective conclusion around what are very subjective uh you know, factors. I, it's another recurring theme in this podcast because I think you all know how much I hate these conversations. And yet I often find myself in them. <laughs> like I get it. I get the allure of creating, you know, pound for pound rankings. I get the, uh, interest in all the, the conversation and the arguments. And I really think it really just is a part of sports culture in general to try to rank everything in what is perhaps a futile attempt to distract ourselves from the maddening meaninglessness of existence itself. But I do think that we all know deep down in our heart of hearts that there is just really no right way <laughs> to go about these conversations. So uh, it really is uh, in many ways pointless. Then again, so is life. So you do you, booze. Next pet peeve comes from Matt Douglas. Uh, fighters that are unwilling to promote their fights or do the absolute bare minimum to promote their fights. Promoting your fight is part of your job. Hmm. I see what you're saying, but I will add a caveat that the promotion also should have some responsibility in the promoting aspect of things. I agree that fighters who want media attention and want more visibility should be, you're talking about bare minimum, right? Available for interviews. And they really do need to do their part in that sense. I say that because I have seen fighters who are either borderline impossible to get a hold of or just generally unwelcoming toward the idea of doing media, later complain that the media doesn't talk about them. And, you know, I understand that there needs to be an individual effort. And of course, it doesn't hurt, right? You're in this super crowded space. You want people to pay attention to you, having a personality, having something beyond what you do in the cage that makes people want to pay attention. Of course, it does help. However, I do think that there is a lot of stock put into the fighters' individual powers to self-promote, while big organizations have entire machines at their disposal and tend to be somewhat short-sighted in how they use them. So I think maybe soft agree, uh, but also kind of want to remind everyone that putting the blame on athletes individually all the time might make us miss some of the broader issues in our sport. And that includes the way that the promotion machine works. Moving forward, ADW. They say the way a fighter's resume can negatively be rewritten because of one or two fights. I'll give you two words, Tony Ferguson. And also another two words while we're at it, Giselle. Yeah, I think that's also like a natural cultural sports thing. Um, we have short memories. There are a lot of fights every weekend. We're also constantly getting hyped about some people. Their sport is kind of always giving us something to focus on and talk about. So it's very easy to just get attached to what we saw last Saturday instead of what we had been seeing for four years prior. And that's what I'm talking about, Tony Ferguson, who had this unbelievable, amazing streak and then went on a bit of a skid and now everybody's just kind of discounting him as an athlete. And he actually was a common appearance in my previous Twitter episode, which focused on fighters who we believed were treated unfairly by public opinion. Uh, he showed up a few times, and I think it's because of that. I think it's because of like the quickness uh, of people to forget the legacy. And I don't know. I don't. I try not to blame us too much for that. I think it's kind of just uh, a natural, also name of the game type thing. Uh, a lot of fighters will talk about how you're only as good as your last fight. I think they acknowledge it themselves, but I do agree that it is upsetting because it takes. I don't know. 
sometimes 10 years uh, to build your legacy and to have it questioned because of a result or two is really uh, extremely frustrating. Uh, next pet peeve comes from Cody Gibson. Uh, dismissing anything a fighter says SCT has got to be up there. Not only is it a low blow to the fighter, but it's also insensitive to people who actually had CT and their loved ones. I recently wrote about this particular trend to give a CT diagnosis to every fighter who says or does something weird or bad. So I will just do a major asshole move and quote myself here. But it really is because it's really recent and I did touch on this. I think it's really important what Cody just said. Uh, what I said in my story that is up on Fanbyte about MMA comments that I could go the rest of my life without listening to is, it is great that after all these years, we seem to be collectively waking up to the harsh realities of being a professional MMA fighter. With better science and more knowledge comes awareness and that fortunately seems to be reflected not only in the way we theorize about health and safety, but the way fighters are currently applying them to their day-to-day in training. Yes, brain health is an issue in contact sports, and the fact that it is painful fact doesn't make it less real. There's a difference, however, between acknowledging that brain trauma is a possibility and assuming that every fighter, or at least all of those who display condemnable behavior, must have it. By just pinning whatever bad action committed by a fighter on CTE, which, by the way, is a specific neurogenerative disease that can only be definitively diagnosed after death, you are all but removing personal agency. And in cases like abuse or domestic violence, deeper social-cultural aspects from the equation. Then there's the fact that many people who actually deal with the consequences of brain trauma or trauma of any nature might never act out violently. And the quick jump to slap a CTE label on harmful actions really doesn't help anyone to deal with the stigma and misconceptions around a deeply complex problem. So I hope that uh, addresses it properly because it's really how I feel about this. Next up comes from Mikey. Mikey says, the whole that should have been a split decision foolery every time. Oh, Mikey, if you only knew how tired I am of having this discussion. I have dedicated so much of my life to this, to try to explain split decisions. I honestly don't know if I still have it in me, but I'll give it another quick go. For everyone out there, I don't know who needs to hear this, but MMA decisions are a result of math. They happened, at least in mainstream promotions like the UFC or Bellator, after three judges score three or five rounds of a fight independently without consulting each other or taking previous rounds into account. A split decision happens when different judges put down different scores on their scorecards and then they get added up. It is merely a mathematical outcome to a situation, meaning that split decisions are not consolation prizes. Split decisions are not deliberate. They are not a thing that happens when the judges see a fight and think that they're close and that the loser deserves to know that it was not unanimous. That just does not make any sense. That is not how numbers work. Please don't ever root for split decisions unless you want everybody else to know that you don't know how numbers work. Then that is very much on you. Next one comes from Volkman. I don't know if this is controversial, but praising God after knocking someone out has always bugged me. I'm an atheist, full disclosure, but I too am puzzled by the idea that all of the things that God is probably super busy doing because like it's big world and there's like a ton of the ton of stuff happening all the time. Why would it just, you know, stopped all of that to help you win a cage fight? I don't understand it. Also, why does God like you more than the other person necessarily? That's, I don't know. That sounds a little harsh. Again, I don't subscribe to this notion, so maybe I'm just being ignorant, but I just have questions, is all I'm saying. Next one comes from Jonas Tesfai. What's fascinating is that you're not looked down upon for tapping out to a choke, but you are if you tap to strikes. Tapping out to the one that can have long-term consequences is cowardly, but tapping out to the one that doesn't really have long-term consequences is okay. Yes, 
Jonas agreed. And then we go ahead and complain about why corners never throw the towel. Make it make sense. But honestly, that is really not to say that MMA doesn't have a corner stoppage problem. I think it's pretty obvious to all of us that it does. But it is to say that this matter is inserted in a larger culture of toughness. That, you know, again, it's very quick to label these ridiculously tough individuals as soft and weak and quitters, etc. This is a bigger concept than we can discuss here in just a couple of minutes, of course. But I do think that there is a lot of shame associated with the idea of a fighter determining for themselves that they have had enough despite the physical possibility that they can continue. It's like we need something more convincing uh, to believe that they had really reached their limits than the fighter themselves deciding that. And I think that's really something that we need to collectively unpack as a fan base. Uh, the next one comes from at MMA Catfish. Uh, also, <laughs> the MMA Catfish changes um, his username often, but now it's I'll follow you home, bitch, which is a, a beautiful reference. Um, he says, okay, so my new pet peeve is that I'm out here defending all fighters over pay, even ones I don't like, and they can't wait to get the mic and volunteer to take a fight for less, for less than XX did. If they can't support themselves in it, and then why in the world do I care so much? Okay, uh, this is a toughie. I get the frustration, absolutely. But uh, what I try to do in these situations is sort of step away from the individual level and look at the entire picture. Like, first of all, put yourself in the athlete's position, right? It's hard not to think selfishly about their careers. Like when you're talking about the life of an MMA fighter, you're looking at extremely limited opportunities. Uh, you're looking at very short windows of time in which to act on those opportunities. You're looking at a very a fast moving sort of universe. And you, you know, people who have the knowledge that if they pass on something, there will be somebody else waiting to get it. And while it is tempting to pin that on their own sort of lack of camaraderie, we also have to look at the structures, uh, the discouragement there is to any type of organizing among them, right? The uh, negotiation tactics that they're subjected to. Um, the fact that, you know, their managers who are supposed to be the people looking out for them and getting their the best deals and, you know, making sure that the clients are the ones getting the benefits over the promotions. We also know that this isn't necessarily what happens all the time with all of the managers. So the way I try to see it is kind of like, okay, Obviously, there is an issue of lack of union, but who truly benefits from that? Because it sure as fuck ain't the fighter themselves. So that's how I choose to see it. Next one comes from Alejandro. Uh, this overreaching, sorry, overarching narrative of fighters being tough guy pushovers is ridiculous. Underpaid, tough it up, shut up. Leverage by an unscrupulous agents, tough it up. Reverse auctioning of services, same. Get shoved, get injured, tough it up. What will the tough guy crowd say? First of all, you use some big words there, Alejandro. I feel like you were setting me up for failure a little bit. Uh, but I do think that this wraps up nicely a few of the concepts we have discussed here already. Basically, Fighters are expected to be robots, uh, wired to entertain us when we need them, and we want them to go away shortly thereafter. Unless, of course, they're serving us uplifting stories and inspiring narratives. The minute that anything they say or anything they do deprives us of our entertainment or forces us to feel uncomfortable or, God forbid, make ourselves question some of our own biases and our own choices and our own participations in this system, we're not cool with it anymore. So again, that's another one for us to collectively unpack. 
Next one comes from Kairos. Um, he says, blind loyalty for a fighter regardless of the circumstances, especially when they're in the wrong. And more times than not, it's solely based on their fighting ability and nothing more. What? I have no idea what you're talking about, Kairos. Never seen that happen. Uh, but for real, as um, Andrew Millington brought up in the mentions, there is a great article on The Athletic written by Chad Dundas that kind of discusses the science uh, of this. It's called, Why do some fans still cheer for MMA fighters they find immoral? Turns out it's partly science. And it touches on the concept of quote-unquote, moral decoupling, uh, which is described in the story as a mental process by which consumers selectively dissociate judgments of morality from judgments of performance. I honestly think we're all a little guilty of it in some area of our lives, and this really falls into that larger can-you-separate-the-art-from-the-artist type of debate. Um, I mean... You may stop enjoying Colby Covington fights, but are you truly prepared to confront the legacies of Charlie Chaplin or Elvis or freaking Gandhi? And don't get me started on Aristotle or Coco Chanel. So I personally do my best to follow my moral compass, and I generally have what I think is an easy time pulling my support from people who behave in shitty ways. I don't. Uh, separate the art from the artist. Uh, and I think no level of talent should be a deterrent for accountability ever. Having said that, though, I do think all of us are guilty of doing some kind of relativization on behalf of people who are perhaps closer to our hearts in one way or another. And speaking of Covington, a recurring character in this little this little space of ours, unfortunately. Uh, but I'm reading now from Sean Denny's pet peeve. Being a quote-unquote character absolving you of saying stuff that you should get boomeranged in the face for. Um, yeah, we've had this conversation here before, so I'm going to keep it brief. But there is kind of this common defense of Covington whenever he does something that, you know, it's people saying that he doesn't really believe in that that he's not really like that that you know he's just playing a part because he want, he needs attention or whatever and it's my question to these people is really simple how is that any better like i just don't really see how the he doesn't really believe in this terrible rhetoric he's spewing he's just acting like he does for money and clout like how does that make this any better it's still terrible rhetoric being thrown out there intentions aside whether that's a real person or a shtick aside it is being thrown into the world for several real people who listen to that who internalize that and that feeds into something bigger, whether you like it or not. And whether you're doing this because, you know, you truly believe the nasty things you say or because you just don't care about the effects of the nasty things you say, as long as you're profiting from it, as long as you're personally benefiting from it, that to me still makes you a shit person. And yes, that it still makes you worthy of getting boomeranged in the face. And I'm saying this very hypothetically because I don't want any legal ramifications for this opinion. Now, here's one from Andrew Millington. Um, he said, standing for Dana. Uh, yes, he was unquestionably the right man for the job during a particularly awful time in North American quote-unquote culture. But I like to think that enough of us have grown up since the 2000s that we can embrace someone less boorish. Uh, yes, that's another recurring theme here because obviously Dana White, is the president of the UFC. And a lot of the times when we criticize him, I get the, you know, but the UFC wouldn't be where it is without him and things like that. And maybe, who knows? Uh, I can't tell how history would have looked, but I can't really discount his role in building the UFC up to where, where it is. And I think his personality um, really probably did help uh, at various different times of the promotion. But... Again, this is a very, very wealthy man 
who has a business to run and he makes his decisions according to what's best for his business. And what I really don't understand, or I kind of do because that's just the way the world works, but what I always am a little puzzled by is how people are so quick to side with him this very powerful man who really doesn't need people on Twitter siding with him uh, over his athletes, <laughs> over pretty much everybody else. It's to me just strange that there is this Dana White cult and this Dana White fan club when he really is just a promoter um, with this very intense personality. And it's just strange. <laughs> In a few ways. And at the same time, it's not because we see that so much, right? And that's another recurring theme. We're all so much closer to poverty than we are at being millionaires or billionaires or what else. And at the same time, we see this trend in which people are so quick to rush to the side of power, of the powerful, uh, rather than everybody else. And it's unfortunate, <laughs> but it is kind of how the way the world works. And I guess in this case, in the case of Dana, like we know he has this uh, very abrasive personality that some people relate to and like. I mean, like it or not, the man has a presence and um, there's a political side of it. I mean, can't run away from it. He was, it's not even, he's not even shy about it. He was in Republican conventions. He spoke in favor of Donald Trump. So, and there's obviously a big part of the fan base. So he, of course, speaks to that part of them as well. So now I'm going to go over quickly some other um, replies that I had. Uppercut Hut said how the majority of MMA fans can't seem to acknowledge that there are great fighters outside of the UFC. Again, that's kind of like by design. The UFC did a very good job at uh, positioning themselves as the one alternative, uh, as the go-to in the market. Uh, at the, also, it's really hard, I think, for us, and I'd take that blame as well, because you know we're keeping up with their schedule, which is very intense. It doesn't really leave even that much time to follow things closely outside of it. Um, but also there is, yeah, I do think that there is just an element of this is the top, this is the pinnacle, and the fighters uh, outside of it kind of seem inferior by comparison when we know it's not true. One big example that I'm going to give, that I always give is Patricio Freire, Patricio Pitbull, who is Bellator's uh, double champion, I think still featherweight and lightweight champion. And he, to me... Uh, could at least be extremely competitive among the top of the UFC's featherweight division. Um, and he keeps getting forgotten in pound-for-pound pound lists and, and, and rankings. And it's one of those things, right? You can kind of see why it happens, but I, I still find it uh, unfortunate. It, it must be very frustrating uh, for these athletes as well. Uh, Woodrow says, this is bananas. Find an actual objective or... <laughs> That's very specific and I love it. I, I, I have no problem with the word bananas, but I do like your energy and your call for creativity. I do feel like we can all afford to expand our vocabularies. So I'm here right there with you. Um... Chris says, I agree completely with the scared fighter allegation, especially when it's in response to fighter to a fighter wanting adequate financial compensation. And that's another facet of the scared fighter thing, right? Like we had it with Joan Jones just recently uh, in his negotiations for a possible heavyweight fight with Francis Ngannou. And uh, there was, I do think though that there was a lot of like a majority was the majority of the reaction was supportive toward John's, Jones, but I do think that there was a lot of, oh, he's just doing this to get out of the fight because he's scared of Francis Ngannou, and that's subjectively ridiculous. That This is, again, I don't feel like it's even worth 
commentating at this point because it's just these are these people's jobs this is their livelihood how can you even john jones faced all these other freaking monsters his entire life but no francis Ngannou is the one that he's afraid it just doesn't make any freaking sense uh but continue on chris's tweet also if a fighter is accused of being boring if they display actual skill particularly on the ground and don't just swing wildly that's another one that i don't really see going away uh it's just i feel like there is a very obvious appeal to a fighter like justin gaethje because it's very uh obviously very physically um powerful the way he fights also very visibly appealing it's also very appealing to everyone right like if you have an uninitiated quote-unquote person watching they're gonna understand what's happening in a gaichi fight they're not gonna necessarily understand what's happening in a freaking freaking insane grappling exchange involving i don't know tim Elliott. uh so you know and that's of course speaking more of the uninitiated but i do think that there is a general idea that the entertaining when we talk about entertaining fighters we're talking about more more the brawler type i don't know if that's changing but i do think that the more you get into the intricacies of mma the more you can appreciate the subtleties of it uh randall kroger says the myth of the puncher's chance oh so the, the all the fighter needs is to knock out this massively superior opponent sounds easy <laughs> yeah i don't know if i would call it a myth because uh puncher's chance is kind of an intrinsic thing that exists in mma but i do hate how it's thrown there uh i do hate that uh, when it, how much it happens in analysis, I understand why you can kind of get away from it if you're talking about, you know, an extremely powerful but sort of uh, maybe outskilled fighter. You have to take into account that the fact that they have that fight ending power is a factor in the fight. And at the same time, I just feel like we put a little too much stock on it, if that makes any sense. Maybe it doesn't, but um, that is to say that I agree but also i wouldn't call it a myth i would call it a thing that unfortunately exists um creepy slow down version of an upbeat song uh <laughs> probably the best twitter uh username i've seen in my life uh the overselling over most fighters kickboxing background wonderland <laughs> was the upper midwest cheese curd 172 and a half pound low impact pajama karate champion and he's sold as being k1 level as a kickboxer uh i believe he's talking about wonder boy steven wonder boy thompson who happens to be an excellent uh mma fighter but you know what happens a lot with this i think like there is some laziness I think when it comes to researching like the actual backgrounds and putting it into perspective, but also like uh, as somebody who was working for MMA Junkie for a long time and who had to like produce sort of fast, we have limited amount of time to put things into context. So we just throw like kickboxing champion or whatever out there. Uh, and this is me putting myself in this equation because I've done it several times in the past, just because it makes it more palatable it like kind of gives a little context and you're not wasting too much time uh but i understand that i i think it also takes a lot of things out of context i feel like it fails to properly give the dimension of the people's accomplishments and it happens a lot, like i laughed a lot at this because it happens a lot when talking about brazilian fighters like how everybody's a bjj champion uh brazilian bjj champion and it's 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 lazy but Again, a little bit of understandable laziness happens in MMA writing, I think. Not to excuse it. I think we can all do a little bit better in terms of just putting things into proper context when it comes to literally everything but this too. Uh, next pet peeve is drawability. Um, they say, don't leave it in the, hand of the, uh, the hands of the judges, aka don't trust people to do their fucking jobs. Also a major uh, pet peeve of mine because I think it really takes away from the judge's responsibility and things. Like often you see a fighter complain about a decision or something and then the argument to dismiss that complaint is kind of like, oh yeah, like 
And they say it themselves, the fighters have like, oh, this is on me. I shouldn't have left it in, in the hands of the judges. Or somebody says, you know, you know what they say, don't leave it in the hands of the judges. No, sometimes <laughs> fights also go to decisions that is within the rules. You need to trust that the judges are going to do their jobs in case a fight gets to that. Like, I don't, I, I hate this idea. I understand that it comes from the, also from the frustration of, just bad poor judgment which we see a lot of of course but and it also comes from this idea that you know the best way or the legitimate way of winning a fight is like ending it spectacularly but that's not true and some fighters just have styles that are more conducive to decisions and i think that we need to be a little more okay with that so i absolutely agree with you Joe from H-Town says, this might piss people off, but my biggest gripe is seeing 90% white people at events. Nothing against those people, just wish USC would spend some money on diversifying their audience. Seems they are just fine with their demographic. Such quick right-winged sellouts in Jack's house in LV, Las Vegas. Um, ah, yes, that's something, <laughs> a little more of a delicate uh, subject that I can just rush through in a couple of seconds but uh we have discussed the sort of idea about the lack of racial diversity um in the ufc in general like in the discourse and everything else and i will expand that to also um women i feel like their product is very much catered to a specific audience um they feel like it work that it like it works and i do feel like there isn't a lot of effort into going beyond it um i think that shows in kind of the way that the product is being um put out now and the way that maybe there isn't as much effort now into making the biggest fights as possible as before um that's going to that's straying from what you said a little bit i think but i think it still fits into just the general idea of how the UFC might be a little too content uh, to cater to the market that they already have and not putting a lot of time into going beyond it. Um, and I think that, you know, we've seen those blind spots in the past, like when we talked about uh, Michael Chandler uh, talking about how he adopted, you know, a black child in Black History Month instead of actually having a black athlete talk. It's kind of like those things where we see that the UFC really could do a better job at seeing, <laughs> seeing beyond their very specific pond. Um, Mark Robertson says, people who see a fighter fall over strangely or a dominant fighter lose and cry fixed. People who think every beef is a calculated move to sell tickets. Gamblers who use analysis in order to bet on a fighter only to accuse them of not following the gameplay and when they lose. That's a lot. I won't touch on all of it, but I will say that the fixed fights thing is also a major pet peeve. I see it happening less now, at least in the big promotions like the UFC, but like we just saw it last weekend when uh, Ben Askren lost to Jake Paul and people were very quick to call that a work because he was super quickly knocked out. And then it's just, I don't know, to me, it's kind of lazy thinking. Uh, maybe it's more comforting to feel that way, to think that a fight was fixed other than that person really lost in that really devastating way. I don't know. I'm sure there's some psychological explanation as to why people's brains just go straight there. But I do think that it is a problem and that it is annoying. Uh, about to wrap up here quickly, I'll talk uh, Summers. Summers, pet peeve. Definitely how old slash new fans treat one another. As a fan from 94 onward, I welcome the tough noobs, the WWE cross crossover uh, and the Connor imports. The way diehards treat casuals is weird. If someone doesn't know Carlos Condit is an OG, point them to his classic fights. Don't be a dick. I have nothing to add to that. I love it. But I do think that this is like a sports-wide or worldwide problem, right? We're territorial beings a lot. And I think a lot of people just feel like threatened maybe or protective. And yeah, or we're just bitter assholes in general. But I do think that we can all afford to learn from this. One very basic piece of, of advice. Don't be a dick. Quickly, Pete J. Wall says, the prevalence of the word stand, especially as a verb. I use stand a lot, so I feel personally attacked. But I will, I will, I will... 
I appreciate your energy, Pete, and I will give you your right to be angry at the word stand. So I support you. Uh, and lastly, Zane Simon, uh, Bloody Elbow Zane Simon, he said, is it too late to get in on this with people who thought Ben Askren could box? That's that's shade, Zane. That's shade. But I will. I wanted to touch on this before we left because I think it ties into something that another uh, Twitter user, Agnostic Front, said. The belief that elite mixed martial artists would become competitive at the top levels of other combat sports, particularly boxing, simply because they are elite mixed martial artists. I, To me, that that's interesting because I do feel like most of us are aware that these are entirely different. It's Everything is different. The way you prepare for a boxing fight, even your everything down to your conditioning is different uh, in a boxing fight, an MMA fight, not to mention the obvious stuff, like, I don't know, the size of your gloves, like every level little thing uh, at the elite level is so much different and I like to think that we all know that and at the same time we keep having these same conversations and we keep entertaining the same notions and it is a little bit exhausting even though I'm a sort of quote-unquote defender of the Jake Paul Ben Askren situation I'm kind of one of those people who believe that there's room for the serious stuff and there is room for the ridiculous stuff. And if it's not for you, just watch something else. Um, I mean, as long as it's physically safe for people, of course. Uh, my, uh, my acceptance of freak shows stops at, you know, people who clearly have no business being inside of a cage or a ring uh, physically at that point of their lives. But I digress. The whole thing is that I do think that is just such a silly conversation to even have. And still, people were pretty split on the Ben Askren, Jake Paul thing. I think I saw a lot of, uh, I saw at least a few like people giving uh, Ben Askren a chance there. Maybe because Jake Paul is himself not a super experienced uh, fighter, of course. Uh, he's not experienced at all. He said, I think this was his third uh, boxing match. So maybe that has something to do with it while Ben Askren had been a lifelong athlete. Uh, but at the same time, I think the writing was pretty much on the wall with that one. But I don't know. I don't even like talking about it because this has been such a major part of the, I'm going to say it again, discourse this week. And uh, people who are more qualified to speak on this subject have uh, done so. And I said Zane would be the last one, but it won't. I lied. Uh, that's on you. Why do you even believe me at this point? But uh, at Power Tools, Date Enjoyer 420. Uh, they said, I can't stand when people act as if prelims UFC fighters can afford to just train wherever in the world with whatever gyms they want. 2000 to show, 2000 to win uh, simply does not pay for the best training in the world. Um, I think that was 20,000. But anyway, it's just. I think that there is still a misconception, mostly I think among uh, people who don't really follow the sport that closely, that uh, once fighters make it to the, to the UFC, they're set, that they're making really good money, or people who just hear about the value of a fight purse and just think, oh, that's good enough money, like fight three times a year, uh, win two, and you're set. And, you know, that math might add, might add up if people really are able to fight three times a year, which we know is not that common. Um, if they win, uh, which might not happen and then we have to account for the camps the managers all the the expenses that they have they sometimes fly in more corners than the, the UFC uh, or whatever promotion will pay for so there's a lot of that money and not to mention taxes um there's a lot of that money, and I'm going to quote the, uh, a story at The Athletic again, going to name a story, story at The Athletic again, because we talked to several fighters anonymously, and financially, uh, I think there was a lot of information to unpack just in terms of how much money these people are losing just like straight out of the gate, out of their paychecks. And then you factor in injuries, you factor in uh, canceled fights, you factor in everything that really goes into such an unpredictable and very unstable sort of line of work. So 
it is really not surprising that a lot of the MMA fighters, uh, even at the highest level, especially early on in their careers, can't afford to be full-time fighters, let alone travel and visit gyms and whatever, and especially if they have families or children. It's an insane notion. So I do think that most of us are increasingly aware of just how dire it is financially for them. But yeah, uh, if anyone thinks that they've got it made as soon as they made it into the UFC, uh, unfortunately, there is very much not the reality. And I think that will do it for today's episode. I am really sorry if I haven't read your tweet today. It's probably either because the subject came up in another tweet or because I am not smart enough to talk about it. Who knows? Either way, <laughs> it's more of a me problem than it is a you problem. Thank you to everyone who took the time to interact and to send their replies. Thank you to everyone who is just now taking the time to listen. And thank you to everyone who is not Andrew from 90 Day Fiance. Fuck Andrew. This has been the best camp of my life. See you all next week. <laughs>